Welcome. We are in week number six of our series that we're calling Thrones as we're working our way through uh, the book of Judges. We're actually at the midway point, or we will be at the conclusion uh, of this message. And we've got our work cut out for us. Uh, during our time together this week, we're going to cover Judges chapter 8, chapter 9, and the first five verses of chapter 10. So I hope you have your running shoes on because uh, we're going we're gonna to be uh, going through a lot here. That being said, there's no way that, that I could read every verse and talk about it. And there's a lot of like detail stuff here. So we're really going to look at Judges chapter 8, 9, and the first five verses of Judges chapter 10 kind of at the 30,000 foot view uh, and I encourage you to read it on your own I think it'll actually make a whole lot more sense uh, after hearing the message but there's all kinds of like cultural details and stuff like this that uh, we would get bogged down in a hurry unless you want to stay for the next three and a half hours all right, so we won't do that. We're going to take that 30,000 uh, foot view and we're going to get done uh, with the message here in under 40 minutes. Uh, but that being said, uh, one of the things I had to make a tough decision about what we needed to cover during our time together this week uh, is really this. I've heard it put this way before. As a society, we're drowning in information while starving for wisdom. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so I don't want to just give you more Bible information Hopefully in our time together, we'll get some Bible wisdom, some wisdom from God, because that's what it's all about that's going to help us uh, to live and fulfill God's plan and purpose for our lives. Now, that being said, last week we talked about Gideon. This is actually the third week that we're going to be looking at the life of Gideon, on, and not only Gideon, but Gideon's sons as well. Last week, God used Gideon to, to really have a miraculous victory in battle against the Midianites, 300 uh, of the uh, Israel's people, Israel's soldiers, uh, went up against Midian. Their number was somewhere at least 30,000, probably more than that. Wiped them out, uh, won the victory. Not one Israeli soldier even was injured in the battle. Just an absolute miracle. That was last week. And the reason for it was God weakened Gideon's army and said, I want to make it clear that when you win this victory, it's not you. I'm the one that did it. And so we looked at winning with weakness last week. Now that being said, now we're in Judges chapter 8, and what we're going to discover is this. This is not a feel-good section at all. That's why I want to cover a lot of it at one, one time. Uh, Gideon goes right off the rails. Gideon's life does not end well at all. Because as a leader, he really did the one thing that leaders just can't do, but it happens all the time. He allowed himself to get full of pride. And it not only was to his own destruction, but it was to, his, to the destruction of his entire family. So I'm going to look at this, Judges chapter 8, Judges chapter 9, first five verses in Judges chapter 10, our time together. But let's look at this as a cautionary tale. In other words, let's look at this so we can learn from Gideon's mistakes and we don't have to repeat those things. Because I believe this, every time that I get up to, to, to preach from God's word, I believe I'm speaking to leaders. All of us are leaders. Every single person is a leader in one way or another. Maybe you're a, a leader in business, a, a, on your job, your, your vocation. Or, or maybe you're a leader uh, in your home. Or maybe you're a leader, maybe you're a coach of a team or something like that. Every one of us has a sphere of influence. And that's what leadership ultimately is, is the people that we're influencing. That being said, 
these lessons, this cautionary tale of Gideon's life, we can apply it to our lives in every area of leadership that we have. And so if you have your Valley Christian Church app, and if you'll go ahead and open that up, you'll be able to fill in the blanks with me uh, as we work our way through here. Three main points uh, in our time together today. Uh, and the first one is this. We're going to look at the danger of success. Nobody ever talks about this. Rarely do you ever hear about how dangerous it is to be successful. Especially spiritually speaking. It's incredibly dangerous, spiritually speaking, when we're successful. I, I think if I asked for a show of hands right now, how many of you want to be successful, we'd all raise our hands. How many of you are aware of how dangerous that is? Wait, what? No one talks about this. But, but this is actually what happened to Gideon. They won this great battle. At the, God is the one that allowed that to happen. Absolute miracle. And you know what? This great victory, this great success ended up being the downfall of Gideon. I, I've heard it said this way before. I believe it's true. The most vulnerable time that you and I will ever face to temptation is after a great victory. The most vulnerable we ever are is after a great success. And so there you see it, Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 35, the whole chapter. And I want to pull some, some real practical lessons out of this in Judges chapter 8 that's really going to help us. I, I heard, I think it was uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes, great, great pastor and, and preacher in Dallas, Texas. He asked a question one time, and I believe there's, there's a lot of truth to it. He said, can you stand to be blessed? Can you stand to be blessed? Can you handle God's blessing? Can you really handle it? Or will God's blessings actually destroy us? Because there's a great, great danger to success. When we succeed, we begin to think like Gideon did, as you read, if you'll do that, I encourage you to, Judges chapter 8. You know what? It really is all about me. It's because of me. It's all because of me. And we get on a pride ride, and it actually ends up destroying us completely. And, and so uh, I want to help us out here just, just real practically. I want to give you five signs that your life has become all about you from Judges chapter 8. Five signs that your life has become all about you. In other words, five signs that you're in dangerous, dangerous water, dangerous territory. Five signs that really pride is flaring up in your life and that there's nothing more dangerous than pride it's the chief of all sins in other words every sin that is possibly known to man it starts with pride and so five signs that your life has become all about you and we find this in the life of Gideon and ultimately his destruction and his death as well as you read through Judges chapter 8 same guy just turn the page Gideon actually, by the end of Judges chapter 8, leads the entire nation of Israel into worshiping idols. Idol worship. He leads them. The, the great, great hero who threw off the Midianites, who said, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Pull down the altars of my fathers, as we looked at. He actually forms with his own hands an idol and leads the entire nation into idol worship because he had let pride into his life. And ultimately, we find at the end of Judges chapter 8, his death. 
Five signs that your life has become all about you. Cautionary tale. Number one, infrequent prayer. Infrequent prayer. See, here's the thing. The more we pray in actuality, the more we realize how desperate we are. The less we pray, I can handle things on my own. I don't need God's help. I got this. Infrequent prayer is a major sign of pride in any individual's life. When Gideon was desperate for God, he prayed instinctively. And, and many, many leaders, they pray as a matter of discipline, and that's really, really good. But for someone who's really dependent upon God, prayer is almost involuntary. You can't stop praying. You have to pray. In other words, prayer is not a little conversation, short little time in the morning, and then you check that box, and you go on with the rest of your life. Prayer is an, is an ongoing conversation with God, between you and God, all day long. Because we realize how desperately dependent we are upon Him. And so a sure sign that your life is all about you is infrequent prayer. Real prayer comes from, from desperation. It's almost like breathing. It just, it just comes out of us. It just flows out of us. I, I believe that this is really true, this statement. Prayer as a discipline is good, but prayer out of desperation is even better. Prayer as a discipline is really good. And I encourage you, pray every morning when you wake up. So important. But I encourage you even further, don't stop praying then. Keep praying. Pray all the time. When you're driving down the road, you know, don't close your eyes, but pray. When, when, when you're in the supermarket, when you're out on a walk, pray. That's one of the things I like to do the most. In fact, just the other day, you know, just feeling some pressures and some things like that coming on me, and I looked at my wife, and I said, Susie, I need to go for a walk. And I just walked around our neighborhood. It's one mile around. It's pretty nice. And I just prayed. I just talked to God the whole time. I, I think it was Monday, it was a day off, it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. But just, just went for a prayer walk. Infrequent prayer is a real, real positive sign that pride is flaring up in our lives. Here's a second sign that, that your life has become all about you. Independent decisions. Independent decisions. Just making decisions without asking anyone's input. Just, just, I can handle that. I don't need anyone input. I don't need to get any other opinion. I'm just going to make the decision. It's a sign that you're living your life and pride is too big and you're in dangerous, dangerous water. Not only does Gideon fail to consult God, he doesn't really consult anybody in Judges chapter 8. He, he, he comes upon, there's three cities, and, and he asks them to help, for, uh, help him because he's following after and he's chasing down the two kings of Midian. And they say, we're not going to help you. And he's like, how dare you? Do you know who you're talking to? I'm Gideon. My 300 guys wiped out the Midianites. You should show me the proper respect that's due me. And they're like, sorry. And he's like, I'm going to come back and we're going to deal with you. He doesn't ask God's opinion. He doesn't pray. He doesn't say, what do you think we ought to do with this situation? He just makes unilateral, domineering decision without input from anyone else. This will destroy you as a leader. Independent 
decisions without consulting anyone. We've all heard the saying before, haven't we? No man is an island. That's the truth. And, and you know what? Okay, here's the deal. I've been pastor for 26 years. 23 years as the senior pastor of this church. I ask for more input now than I did when I was 24 and became the pastor. Because the longer that I do this, the more I realize how little I actually know. And there's no way Greg Williamson, left to himself, is going to make the right decision without input. Not just big decisions. Because here's what I've discovered. If you don't ask for help on small decisions, you will never ask for help on big ones. If pride keeps you from asking for help on small things, when the chips are down and the stakes are high, you will not reach out and say, hey, what do you think about this? Because pride's got a stranglehold on the inside. And so even this sermon, I, I asked some of the members of the staff, and I said, listen, this is what I'm thinking. This is the approach. I don't want to think that I can just, you know, this is right on my own. What do you think? They're like, yeah, that sounds really, really good. And they gave me some valuable input. Independent decisions. I'm the man. I'm the man. I don't need to ask anyone's opinion. Just wait. You're not going to be the man very long. The Bible puts it this way. Be careful that you think you stand, lest you fall. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble ask for input. The humble look for advice when they're facing small decisions and when they're facing weighty ones as well. Independent decisions. Look at what Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1 says. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against, sound, against all sound judgment. Anyone who says, I'm an island, I'll just do it what I want, I'll just decide for myself. The Bible says you're seeking your own desires, not God's. You're not going to find God's best for your life. Just, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and not ask anyone's input. It won't happen. In fact, you break out against all sound judgment. It's just foolish. It's just foolish. God's created us in such a way that we're relational people, and we need relationships. We need interaction. We need advice. We need to help one another out. That's why here at Valley Christian Church, our small groups, community groups, are so important. Because it's a place we really develop community, trusting relationships. Can't do that with everybody, but you can do it with somebody. And begin to share our lives with each other. Even starting this past week, last night, we started uh, our short-term group for the summer series called Not a Fan. Again, just, just to learn and to grow in circles with one another. So we have these trusting relationships. But whoever isolates himself, whoever says, I can just do everything on my own, I'm fine, I don't need anyone else, he's really just seeking his own desires. Pride. And he breaks out against all sound judgment. There is something that also we communicate value to other people when we ask for their input. I, I remember back in 2005, uh, it seems like a long time ago now, uh, but when I went back to coaching high school football at John Jay, I coached for four years in the early 90s and then uh, took a break while our kids, or my wife and I, our babies were being born and raising them. And then 2005, Susie encouraged me to go back to coaching, and I thought it was a good time for it. And, and so I went back to John Jay, and I got a chance to coach uh, with, with a longtime friend of mine named Brian Walsh. 
uh, that I ended up coaching with him for eight years until I hung up my whistle just a few years ago. And I learned so much from him. Uh, he's, he's one of the winningest coaches in the history of New York State in football. And, and he was coaching at Brewster High School when I was at John Jay and helped me out a lot when I was in high school. And, uh, and I'll never forget it. We were like in game four that year and uh, we're at Mayapack High School and John Jay had never beaten Mayapack High School ever in the history of the high school. And we're at Mayapack, it's crazy, there's so many people there. And late in the fourth quarter, we score a touchdown and we tie the game. We tie the game, there's four minutes to go. And I'll never forget this, Brian calls a timeout. And he goes and he hands me his headset, I have my headset on and I take mine off and I'm holding his and he goes for timeout in high school, the coaches go on the field for timeout. And as he's about to the numbers on the field, he turns around to me and he says, Greg, what do you think? And I said, go for two. I don't know what came over me. I, I don't know what my, where my mind was, but I said, go for two, coach, instead of kicking the extra point. And he went, all right. Called the play, came to the sideline, said, coach, what are we doing? He goes, we're going for two. I hope it works. It was your idea. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? He's like, I hope it works. Well, it did work. We scored two points, so now we're up by two with four minutes to go, and the defense has got to take over. And wouldn't you know it, they start marching down the field, and we ended up stopping them, and we won by two points. I will never forget afterwards, I was like, Coach, thank you so much. I was like, you have no idea what that meant. You asked my opinion, that you wanted my opinion. And he's like, he looked at me, I'll never forget this. He said, Greg, you're one of my assistant coaches. That's what you're there for. One of the winningest coaches in all the state asking my opinion about something in a critical moment like that. And I never felt so valuable. We, 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 we add value to people when we ask for their input, when we ask their opinion. Independent decisions ultimately will destroy us. We win as a team or we lose as individuals. Here's the third sign that you've become, uh, your life has become all about you, intensifying resentment. We increasingly begin to become resentful for people who we feel are standing in the way of what we want to do. Standing in the way of what I want to accomplish. It's keeping me down, keeping me away from something that I deserve. Intensifying resentment in our lives is another sign that our life has become all about us. When it's all about you, you resent those who get in your way, and you become harsh and cruel with those who challenge you and the things that you're doing in your life. You can't forgive anyone who challenges you or obstructs you from what it is that you want to accomplish. Intensifying resentment. Fourth sign, if you will, that your life's become all about you, increasing materialism. Increasing materialism. As you read through Judges chapter 8, the people came to Gideon and they said, listen, we want to make you the king. And he's like, no, I can't, I can't be the king. I mean, that wouldn't be right. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that'd be right for me to be king anyway. And he said, I'll tell you what, instead of making me king, how about you all give me some of your gold? 
they were like, sure, you won the battle against the Midianites. We, we, we won all this plunder, all this gold. And they gave him earrings, and they gave him bracelets, and they gave him all this gold. And it was a huge amount of gold. And do you know what he did with the gold? The materialism, the lust for more, I just don't have enough. He made an idol out of the gold. And he put it in his hometown of Oprah. You can read this in Judges 8. So that everyone would come to see. And the gold, the idol was actually gold clothing. It was like a golden outfit. And so that they would come to his hometown and be like, boy, that Gideon is really something. And it ended up leading the entire nation into worshiping that as an idol. Increasing materialism. Increasing materialism is a sign. Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 27. Gideon takes the people and he makes for himself a suit of clothes made by made of gold. Listen, don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't believe that poverty is more holy than prosperity. But what I do believe is this. We need to ask ourselves the question, can I stand to be blessed? Can I handle God's blessings? It, it, how, here's, here's a way you know. How are we doing with what we have now? Because I'm not going to change for the better when I have more. I'll be the same. Money doesn't make us, uh, money doesn't give us better quality. We don't become uh, uh, more, uh, we don't have more character because we have more money. Does the word Kardashian mean anything? Just because we have a lot doesn't mean that we're sterling character at all. Increasing materialism. And here's the fifth sign that your life is becoming increasingly about you instead of God, image management. Image management. We're so concerned about our reputation that we ignore our character. Our reputation is who people think we are. Our character is who we really are when no one's looking. That's what counts to God. Not who we, you know, fool people into thinking we are. Image management is a sure sign. I'm so worried about what everyone thinks about me that I'm not at all concerned about who I truly am. The true me that no one else really knows. And so what's the antidote? What's the antidote to these five signs that our life may be increasingly about me? Excuse me, self-centered. I think it's found in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. And, and I would have suggested this to Gideon had I lived back then. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9, listen to the wisdom of, of the Bible. Make me absolutely honest, this great prayer. Make me absolutely honest and don't let me be too poor or too rich. Give me just what I need. And then it goes on and says, if I have too much to eat, I might forget about you. God, if I have too much to eat, I'm going to think I've got this all made. I don't need God. If I don't have enough, I might steal and disgrace your name. This prayer that, that, that we find here in Proverbs, just give me what I need, just what I need, so that I'll recognize I'm always dependent upon you, Lord, that I don't get too puffed up. If I have too much to eat, I'll forget how much I really need you, God. If I have too little, I might steal cause your name, Heavenly Father, to be disgraced. 
And so in Judges chapter 8, if I had to boil it all down, I'd put it this way. Don't take God's blessing of success in your life for granted and make the fatal mistake of thinking it's all about me. Because God's blessings in your life and God's blessings in my life are all about him, not about us. It's about his love, his unconditional love and grace in our lives. Don't let that good thing that God has done in your life spoil you for all the rest that he wants to do in your life. That's the, that's the summary of Judges chapter 8. Now, here's the thing, Judges chapter 9, we're in Judges chapter 9 now. Gideon, not only does he go off the rail and leading the nation into idolatry, Gideon, check this out, the Bible says Gideon had 70 kids. He was a player. Gideon had not only 70 kids, this was often the number, this is the way they numbered things back then, he had 70 sons. They didn't even count the girls. He had 70 sons. He had a number of wives, which it wasn't like God was like, oh, that's okay. He had several concubines, which like just wasn't enough, I guess, having, you know, tens and tens of, you know, whatever wives. And he had all these sons. And in Judges chapter 9, one of Gideon's sons named Abimelech, he comes to a city and he says, listen, my dad, you know who he was? If, if, you, if you were going to have a king or a family rule over you, would you want it to be 70 of Gideon's sons, or would you choose one? And they were like, oh, well, we would choose one. How about you, Abimelech? And he's like, I thought you'd never ask. And so this city uh, that he goes to called Shechem, he says, listen, I want to take care of my rivals. And so he schemes with all the uh, citizens of Shechem on how to kill every one of Gideon's sons. And they lure him into a trap, and they murder every single one of his brothers on the same stone, smashing their head on the stone. Like I said, book of Judges, we're trying to keep it PG-13. It's more like R, no doubt about it. So he completely annihilates every one of his half-brothers. Because Abimelech is actually, one of the, as I mentioned, the son of one of the concubines of Gideon. And as we read through this in Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 57, we have the question of judgment. Question of judgment. God, are you just going to sit there and let this happen? I mean, where is God when this is happening? Abimelech wipes out his family. Actually, check that. There's one of the sons that actually escapes. One of the sons that escapes out of the 70. And he actually speaks to Shechem. And, and he gives them kind of a parable. You can read it in Judges chapter 9. And basically, he says this. It looks like right now Abimelech is winning, but God's going to have the final word. You watch. And it's all a parable that he gives. And then... At the end of Judges chapter 9, it looks like it's just gone from bad to worse. Gideon has led the nation into idolatry. Now Gideon's son, it's murderous. But God does have the last word. 
and Abimelech actually is killed, you can read it for yourself, by a woman when he's attacking a tower. And she drops a huge stone on his neck. And he's staggering around, and he turns to one of his friends, and he says, please, take your sword out and put me out of my misery because I don't want my reputation to be uh, soiled that a woman killed me. And so one of his friends draws his sword and sticks it through Abimelech. Lovely. Let's pray and go home. Here's the whole point of Judges chapter 9. God is still in control even though it looks like circumstances and situations are spinning out of control. Look at what it says in Judges chapter 9, verses 56 and 57, last two verses. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. Then he goes on and it says, And God also made the people of Shechem pay for their wickedness because they conspired with Abimelech. The curse of Jotham, he's the son of Jerubabel. Remember, Jerubabel is a nickname. It means Baal butt kicker. It's a nickname for Gideon. The son of Jotham, he's the one who told the parable. And he said, listen, what Shechem has done, what Abimelech has done, God's going to have the last word. And we find here, the curse of Jotham, son of Jerubabel, came on them. God said, I am going to have the last word. So many times for you and for me, we get locked in the present moment. And we can't see what the next day or the next week or the next month is going to hold to the next year. And the lesson for you and me in Judges chapter 9 is this is not the end. This is not the end. The walls may feel like they're closing in. It it may be like I just can't even open. I don't even want to know what the news is anymore. This is not the end. God is going to have the last word. So what does this teach us through this generation here in, in Judges chapter 9? What can we learn from this? Here's the first thing. God's judgment is slow and sometimes subtle, but it's always sure. God's judgment is slow and sometimes it's very, very subtle, but it always happens. God, God is not going to let the, the wicked go unpunished. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it puts it this way. The Lord isn't really slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. And, and so many times on the world stage, we see you know, uh, tyrants rise, and, tyrants, and, and we're just like, God, where are you? What's going on? Are you even in control? And he's like, I'm being patient. Because my real desire is I don't want to see anyone destroyed. I, I want to give plenty of time for anyone and everyone to turn to me and to repent. And so God's judgment is slow and sometimes subtle, but it's always sure. Second thing we can learn in Judges chapter 9 is this. The problem isn't out there, it's in here. The problem isn't out there, it's in here. In Judges chapter 9, it's very, very interesting. There is no external enemy in the story of Abimelech. It's God's people, Israel, with Israelis. There's no enemy from outside. And what we discover is this. The enemy was always on the inside. Our wandering hearts. 
our, our, our hearts that devise all kinds of schemes that are against God. And, and there, there's no enemy to be fought here. It's in the nation of Israel. The enemy is actually inside. This is the story of the first one in Judges where there's no actual oppression for them to come out of. No enemy for them to go to battle against. It's interesting also there's no special outpouring of judgment that, that happens here in Judges chapter 9. It's just Abimelech and God basically says, okay, if that's what you're going to do, I'll let you have the natural consequences of your rebellion against me. Same thing with the citizens of Shechem. He's like, God's, I don't want to do this. I don't want this to happen. But, but if that's what you want, I'm going to let the natural consequences of your decisions against me come upon you. Think about it. Judges chapter 8, what happened to Gideon, and it ends with his death. Judges chapter 9, Shechem disregards God's commandments. Abimelech, his treachery, his backstabbing leads to his downfall. No nation comes in or anything, just blood and death and destruction. God just saying, I'm going to let you experience the natural consequences of your wayward ways. This is a cautionary tale that we all need to learn from, that we can learn from, that we don't have to make the same mistakes. I put it this way, and I think this is pretty concise, by the great Christian author C.S. Lewis. He said, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. God, let your will be done. Or those to whom God says, your will be done then. What tragic words that we would ever hear from our Heavenly Father. Greg, your will be done. It's not what I want for you, Greg. But if that's what you want, your will be done. Only two kinds of people. God, your will be done. Whatever you want of me, whatever your will is, that's what I want. Or those that God says, that's not what I have for your life. But if that's what you want, then go right ahead. Two kinds of people. The third thing that we learn in Judges chapter 9 is this. We need a new king, not Abimelech. We need a better judge, and that's Jesus Christ. We don't need a king who connives. We don't need a, a king who schemes. We need a king who will come, and he'll lay his life down for those who want nothing to do with him. We need a king who will sacrifice everything because he loves those in his kingdom so much. See, when we come to God, so many times we think the primary need that we have is that he would deliver us some, from some sort of bad thing, some sort of pain, some sort of broken relationship. Maybe, maybe it's a lack of money. But that's not really what you and I need the most. We don't need deliverance from something. You and I need deliverance from ourselves. Because the truth is, we're our own worst enemies. That left to ourselves, we will destroy 
ourselves. And we don't need just forgiveness from our sins. We need God to transform our hearts and change our lives. And only he can do that. No one else can. We don't need deliverance from something. We need deliverance from ourselves. That he would change our hearts. Think about it for just a minute. If God answered every single one of your prayers, every single prayer you've ever prayed, prayer for prosperity, prayer for uh, educational excellence that we would experience, each and every one of us, prayer for a perfect government that always makes the right decision. What would life look like on this earth? We would still be messed up. Because the problem is not any of those imperfect things. The problem is us. The problem is the deceitfulness of our own wayward hearts. That's why the New Testament, because of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, that he took your place and he took my place on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins and rose again. That's why the New Testament can promise if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. He's making us new again. We're not there yet. And we never will be until we see him face to face. This is why we have to always recognize our desperate need of him all the time every moment of the day and we cannot take pride in ourselves our heart has to be changed my heart has to be changed your heart has to be changed we need a savior who can deliver us not only from the curse around us but from the curse inside of us as well we don't need just a savior who can fix our situation we need a savior who can fix us and that's who jesus is and i don't want to leave you right there and so let's just jump into judges chapter 10 real quick the first five verses because there's something i want to point out in the last moments that we have together the gift of grace the gift of god's grace Look at what it says in Judges chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And it's kind of hard. It has all these names and all, but I'm going to do the best I can. Judges chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. At the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Yeah, it actually, Dodo's in the Bible. The son of Dodo rose to save Israel. And he lived in Shemar in the hill country of Ephraim. It goes on and it says, And he led Israel 23 years. And then he died, and he was buried in Shemar. Then the next verse, in verse 3, it says, And he was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. Okay, big deal. Uh, they couldn't control, they controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Camon. Now that's, that's Camon, not Camon Islands, that's Camon, okay? 
What's the point here? Why are you reading those five verses and we're stopping there? I want to point out something that is somewhat, it, it seems very subtle, but it's incredibly significant. That after the death of Abimelech, in Judges chapter 10, God sends a rescuer. He sends a rescuer whose name is Tola in verses 1 through 2. And then he's, and he reigns, or he, he's a judge in Israel for 23 years. And then when Tola dies, he sends another rescuer. And that rescuer's name is Jair. This is the first time, watch this now, the gift of God's grace. There's no mention that the people of Israel turn back to God. But he still sent them help. It doesn't say that they repented. It doesn't say that they turned from their idolatry, but our God who loved them so much and loves you and I so much, he still helped them and sent them a deliverer for over four decades, even though the people of Israel at the time wanted nothing to do with God. He still sent them help. He still cared for them. He still loved them, even as they continued to go in the opposite direction of him. That's what grace is all about. Even as we sang amazing grace. What's so amazing about grace is this. You and I will never deserve it. You and I will never earn it. But it's the free gift of God. That's what's so amazing about grace. And so let me end with this question. Have you asked God to save you from yourself? Do you recognize how lethal pride is in the heart of any human being? I don't know about you. I think this would be a wonderful time for us to bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask you as we, as we read through Judges chapter 8 and chapter 9 and the first few verses of chapter 10, God, we do ask you not just to save us from a situation, but Father, save us from ourselves. Save us from our independence where we don't think we need you and we don't recognize how desperately we need you every moment of our life. Save us, Lord, from our pride. Lord, may we see ourselves as totally dependent upon you every day. May we pray frequently. May we ask for advice from others and decisions often. May we put away resentment and materialism. And may we be more concerned about our character before you than our reputation before others. In Jesus' name we pray.